This is a Federal News Network podcast. During the COVID pandemic, staffing at the nation's health care facilities has been a challenge pretty much across the board. But the military's hospitals and clinics face special circumstances. Military clinicians whose day jobs were at military treatment facilities could be pulled away for other COVID-19 missions with little or no notice. The Defense Department's Office of Inspector General looked into this. 26 out of 30 facilities said staffing problems were their biggest challenge. Andre Brown is Program Director for Military Health Care and Operations at the DOD IG's office. He talked about their findings with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. In some cases, these challenges had you know, pre-existed um, to the pandemic. However, the pandemic exacerbated those problems. The officials that we spoke to reported that they did not receive additional staffing during the pandemic. And while, you know, they, they also had to conduct the COVID-19 response requirements, such as testing, vaccinations, and, and contact tracing, they also had to do those missions with existing uh, medical personnel, which, which took away from other daily functions. Um, and then also, you know, they stated that recruiting and hiring it during the pandemic was extremely difficult. They, you know, attributed that difficulty mostly to non-competitive salaries, especially for nurses and specialty care. And, and that was, you know, due to the, a long, drawn-out hiring process. What, what did MTF officials tell you about how, if at all, that these shortages actually impacted the delivery of care? So... When we spoke to the MTF officials, they often talked about um, the staffing and manpower shortages combined with uh, long work hours, right, which was, you know, uh, commiserate with the the private sector, obviously resulted in severe uh, burnout and fatigue. Um, They also talked about that, you know, patient safety incidents had increased um, and that the, the lack of staff or overworked staff could potentially compromise the quality of care to patients. The burnout and fatigue, and you know, in some cases, caused some staff to quit, which further exacerbated um, the shortages. And then the requirement to perform that additional MTF COVID mission with, you know, your testing, your vaccinations, uh, contract tracing, resulted in reduced healthcare services, and in some instances, delayed healthcare preventive care to to your your regular patients. And then there was a couple other areas, uh, such as reduced staff training, the ability for the, the workers to maintain the proficiency of the skills, which you know affects the overall care of your patient. And then also uh, patient referral to the civilian network. The MTFs were inundated with appointments. And so if patients wanted to be seen, they had the, the option to be able to go to the civilian network. Um, but because everyone was trying to get uh, appointments, they were often not be able to be seen in their local area, so they may have to drive one to three hours away from their local area. I want to focus a little bit on the on the military provider side of this. I think, as most of our listeners know, in an MTF setting, it's kind of a blend of military providers, civilian providers, contract providers. A lot of the military folks got pulled out to go do other COVID missions, and and I think. The, the restructuring of the MTF system has kind of created this unique situation where the MTF administrators don't actually control their entire workforce. Their their military folks can get pulled out kind of at any time, which seems like that makes it extra important for the military departments to coordinate with the MTFs to make sure that they actually have the people that they need or at least conduct some kind of balancing to decide 
where these folks are needed most. How much of that coordination happened in this case, and, and does DOD need to do better on that front? Yes, this is a, an area where we, where we identify that you know there needs to be some improvement, and where we made recommendations to the department to improve. We didn't necessarily designate a degree of you know whether it was good or bad, but we you know talking to the MTF officials, obviously they indicated uh, where there was a severe lack of coordination between the services and the DHA about personnel who were diverted uh, from the MTF. Obviously, you know, they, you know, stated in some cases they were, weren't fully kept in the loop about the mission. You know, they weren't told until the last minute that these personnel would be going somewhere else, which left, you know, the MTF in a very bad position. So we were making uh, recommendations to, you know, improve that coordination uh, between service personnel, DHA, and the MTFs to allow, to allow the MTFs to plan for a shortage of personnel due to deployments in the future. And then also the coordination for receiving backfills to replace deployed personnel, uh, that was an area of improvement as well. Because in some cases, the MTF, they applied for backfills, and in some cases they were denied. Uh, in other cases, they applied for a certain number. For example, in one case, they applied sent a request for eight personnel. They only received, you know, one of the eight, so they didn't receive the number they requested. So uh, obviously puts the MTF in a bad position. And, and I think part of the ingredient here is is the military services had already, for a few years now, I think, planned on reducing their overall number of military medical billets. And I, th- I think the plan there was to replace those with civilian providers. But from what you've said earlier, it sounds like they've been challenged on that front, just hiring those folks to to fill the slots. Is that part of this? Correct. So in 2021, the DOD issued a plan for the billet reduction in response to Section 719 of NDAA 2020, uh, which included the plans to hire for civilian and contract personnel for those exact positions. However, it's currently on on pause because Congress wants to to relook at that. So Uh, Section 732 of NDA 2020 requires a further assessment of that plan. Um, You know, obviously during this particular report or evaluation, we had MTF officials who expressed their concern about uh, military billet reductions. A lot of the times those billets that, you know, the military member had vacated, a billet, you know, someone was not, um, or the billet was left unfilled or else, you know, no one had come in behind them to replace them or they weren't weren't able to replace it with a civilian uh, personnel. So, you know, it still left the, the, the MTF short. But we are monitoring progress of the, the billet reduction plan, but we did not have an update at this point. Got it. Um, just down to our last couple minutes here, and maybe you can spend that time talking about some of the recommendations that you made to the department. You've touched on a couple of them already, but but fill us in a little bit more on what the IG um, recommended and, and how the department has responded. Uh, we made a couple of uh, recommendations to the Defense Health Agency and then to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for uh, Health Affairs. So the Defense uh, Health Agency we made recommendations to address the staffing challenges, streamlining the uh, the hiring process to fill the, the civilian staffing positions, to look at, at salaries for nurses. Obviously, in the uh, private sector, they're hiring at a higher rate. And so being able to look and see if we can hire at those salaries so we can bring in you know, higher quality nurses. 
uh, assessing uh, the ability the MTFs to receive augmentation from for staff from the reserve components during pandemics. Uh, we also wanted them to look at uh, manpower uh, requirements for COVID-19 um, and identify medical personnel requirements during the MTFs for future pandemics. With the ASD for Health Affairs, the big things for personnel, obviously, with staff burnout and such, we wanted them to look at or, or develop, actually, a DOD policy for maximum hours work, maximum shifts, um, the coverage of duties for uh, staff working in, in the MTFs to reduce the impact on the staff. And then lastly, the ASD um, Health Affairs was in charge of the military health system COVID-19 AAR. Nothing has been done on that at this point, so we made a recommendation to either direct or create a, a new or existing working group to look at this and monitor the milestones. The AAR was conducted from April 2020 to January 2021, which resulted in 23 key lessons learned and 79 recommendations. Uh, we determined that 13 of the 23 lessons learned could address MTF challenges in this report. And sorry, one last quick follow-up. Did did you did your work this time around get into at all whether DOD has the hiring and, and salary authorities it needs to actually bring those clinicians in at higher pay rates, or is that another project for another day? Yeah, that's another project. We identified the, the issue, but that was we did not go into the details of that in this report. Andre Brown, Program Director for Military Healthcare and Operations at the Defense Department's Office of Inspector General, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day and visit seizethenightandday.com to learn more. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.